we are, uh, we are nearing the end of this here today. Revelation 19, 22 chapters in the book and 21 and 22 could really be one chapter. They're like the identical idea going on. So we're like totally in the gate. I don't see Zach here this morning, but uh, just big shout out to Zach for uh, covering last week. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, give it up for him. Sure. And don't let him know that you clapped for him. That's his problem being late, you know, so... Um, Reagan, my oldest daughter, graduated college last week, so we were down in St. Louis for that. Yep, yep, followed up with a head shave on top of that, right? So rock on there. And uh, why don't we just jump right in and see where this takes us. Revelation 19. Here we go. After this. All right, we got two words in, right? Whenever you see after this in the Bible... What should you do? What's it after? Right. Because we got to remember this, and it's so hard to remember that all of these chapter divisions and all of these header divisions are artificial constructions. None of these are part of the original Bible. It was written as a story or a narrative or a movie with scene to scene, however you want to go about it. So I tend to still read the Bible by articles. How about you? You know what I mean by articles? Like you read it like a news article. It's like, well, there's that article. Don't do that. So what's the continuity? 17 and 18 is where we have what Revelation calls the whore of Babylon being cast down. The whore of Babylon is riding this beast and she's seducing everyone into her intoxicating ways. And the angel comes and even commands John and the people of God to come out of her because her judgment is coming. And 17 and 18 is all about the judgment and throwing down of this beast and whore of Babylon, which is basically Rome. And by extension, whoever else fits the bill. So after she is thrown down. I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunders, shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. And at this, I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, heaven's busting loose, right? We got 
we got heaven like exploding with cheers and shouts and acclamations and hallelujahs and amens. And if you're kind of following the storyline here, Revelation, we're starting to come full circle because Revelation is a bunch of circles. But you might remember all the way back into the beginning of Revelation. I'm talking like chapter 4 and chapter 5 where we start in heaven. And we're seeing things from heaven's perspective. And what you see is 24 elders. Well, hey, we're meeting them again. And multitudes that no one can count. And we're seeing them again. All cheering and praising God and seeing things from his perspective. Well, we've just gone through agony on earth from basically chapter 6 to chapter 18. And so now that we have gone from heaven to earth's perspective... We're coming back and seeing why heaven is cheering the way heaven is cheering. Because when you see what's going on from heaven's perspective, when you're in the trench in the middle of it, it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? The horror that you face, the struggles before you, the injustice around you, whatever it might be, if you can shift and see God's point of view, at the very least, it's going to give you patient endurance to get through it. But now we're seeing that everything God's been saying from the beginning that these ones who are tormenting you, they'll be cast down. These ones who are getting away with murder, they're not going to get away with murder. These ones who are trying to allure you and antagonize you and corrupt you and intimidate you into giving up your faith in Jesus, they're coming down. The, those who exalt themselves will be humbled to use Jesus' words in the gospel. And heaven is rejoicing rejoicing in the freedom it's bringing them, rejoicing in the destruction it's, that's being meted out upon their enemies. You, you get in the sense of this, right? Now, a couple of things to just anchor into that I think are central to uh, what, what John is doing here. And do you see, like, I think it's verse 7. It's too little. Yeah, verse 7. All right. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? What is the answer to that? Because the wedding has come. What is the wedding? Unpack it. Yeah, God's united. Yeah, I mean, Jesus and the church are maybe the couple. You know, that's not the wedding, but those are the people in the wedding, right? But they're finally, Jesus and the church are finally getting hooked up, right? They're finally getting matched. They're finally, bam, we're consummating this sucker. They're finally coming together and starting what has been a waiting game. Everything in Revelation is drawing off of things that Jesus has taught in other language that you could read about in the Gospels or that Paul elaborates and other people do too. And I'll show you a few of these as we go further. But one of the common things Jesus, one of the common parables Jesus uses is a wedding. And one of the common ways he teaches his disciples about what's to come is it's this idea of waiting through an engagement period and the bridegroom has to leave. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared a place for you, I am coming back to bring you to where I am. The whole thing is, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And you don't want them to leave because it's your fiancé, right? It stinks when your fiancé leaves. Does it stink when your fiancé leaves? It stinks when your fiancé leaves, right? No one wants that to happen, and you yearn for the day. And now the wedding has 
come. And something else has happened. The wedding has come, and what else has happened? And I'm forcing you to read this intentionally, so just bear with me. The bride is ready. The bride? You can get a little bit more specific on it. Yeah, the bride is ready. Is that how it translates it in years? Are you 84 NIV? Yeah, you are. I could tell by the cover. Yeah, you're good. What's it, what does it actually say? Like word for word. She has made herself ready. Which, yeah, I'm totally with you 100%, Jared. I mean, it means she is, in fact, ready. But I think there's a nuance in this that's important to catch because you understand that this has been a preparatory period, right? The bride, Jesus didn't show up and she goes, hey, I'm ready. She's been preparing for the day. She has been making herself ready for the day. Now, let's start just at the plain metaphor at the surface level meaning. Who here is married or has ever been married? Okay. Now, it does happen once in a blue moon that you just go, hey, want to get married? And they go, yeah, okay. And then you go meet Vegas, uh, you go meet Elvis at the Vegas Wedding Chapel, or you go to the courthouse and you just do it. But my bet is, who here had any preparatory work for their wedding? Okay, it's it's generally the case. Doesn't mean everyone's doing like the three-year marathon. Um, it might have been shorter, but generally, people prepare for their wedding. Now, let's put ourselves in bride shoes. We have some brides here. We have some future brides probably here. I know one for sure. And we have people who have seen brides get themselves ready. What are some of the universals that girls like to do when they get ready for their wedding day? Their hair. Okay, their hair, right? Which I love that one, right? Because you're just owning it the other way on that. But they get their hair done. Okay, what else do they do? They get a dress, a dress that they're only going to wear one time, a dress that costs way too much money, a dress that they're never going to know what to do with after they get married, right? So they put all this energy finding the right dress and the showings. Okay, what else do brides do? What else do they do? Okay, I saw this, nails, they tan, right? You got to get the perfect tan, right? You got to get all that. There's a guest list going on. Um, But let's talk about just the bride for herself. What else do brides do? I mean, certainly there's wedding planning to happen, but what are brides often doing? They're getting a pretty dress. They're getting their hair. They're getting their tan. They're getting their nails. There's something else, makeup, something else that I think tends to be somewhat universal among Women, maybe I'm misjudging men. They're losing weight. They're getting in shape, right? Why are brides doing all of this? <laughs> Why don't they just get a bigger dress, Jared? You know? Well, because that would be the easy way. Mike? Yes, Mike? <laughs> Because you want to look hot. Bottom line, you want to look good for your husband. And I think it's actually more than that, Mike. I think you definitely want to look good for your husband. I think they want to look good for all their guests. Because in every bride's mind, it is not the husband's day. It is their day, right? 
and they want to walk out on the red carpet. Of course, it will be white, but it's a red carpet, right? And all eyes and all the cameras start shuddering. It's just kind of this thing that brides have typically fallen into doing. They want to look good, generally. I think it's gotten distorted, actually. I'm going to go down my side tangent now. Forgive me, brides, who happen to be here. But it's a little bit crazy to me how so many women have put more emphasis on their appearance than who they truly are in preparation for their wedding day, right? As long as I look good on the outside, who cares what I am on the inside? And I don't think anyone would ever say that. But the reality of where you see where money is spent and energy is expended and emphasis is put, no, it's about my veneer. Um, I'm going to make you cry, but I'm going to gush on you. So my daughter, Reagan, is getting married. She was going to get married August 6th, but that's going to be right after her final chemo treatment. No one wants to get married on chemo. You feel like crud, I would imagine. So they pushed it back. But the question was, are you going to push it back to 2024? And they said, no, we're going to push it back to September 30th, 2023, about seven weeks post-chemo. As a dad, I go, Reagan, you're not going to have your hair. Are you okay? I don't care. Are you okay with that? She's like, I want to get married, you know? And it's so awesome to me to see that it's not the veneer in this case, but what she's found with this guy she wants to spend the rest of her life with who goes, I don't care if you have hair. I mean, I bet he cares, but that's not like a, you know, a barrier or something like that. How awesome is that? They still made themselves ready. She still made herself ready. No, no, maybe you don't have the hair. Who cares? There's still this preparatory work of we have got something momentous coming our way. And how are we ready for it? How much more with Jesus' return? If Jesus' return is being compared to a wedding, and we think of all the ways that we prepare ourselves for just a single day, and by the way, it's not women alone. Guys, it's us too, right? We get our hair cut, we take a shower that day. We, you know, yeah. We, we truly probably are like, yeah, I think I'm going to hit the gym for a few months beforehand. You know, we do all that kind of stuff. There's this idea of being prepared. Do you ever think about it that way with Jesus? Because I think that's what it's inviting us to do. Jesus is going to come and we are going to be united with him in a way that can only be even remotely understood through the analogy of marriage. How do we prepare for him? So, yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, when you talk about being prepared for it, the, the wedding day is, is a blur, and it goes so quickly, and then all of a sudden you're married. So if you're not prepared for that, just like you know, people who might make a ask Jesus in their heart type thing, and then and then they lose it later on, or they just not following through later on. I think it's it's a preparatory phase you go through, so you know you're you know you're you're ready and committed. Yeah, yeah. I think what Revelation is doing is giving us a classic fairy tale motif. I think it's, it resonates with that. Um, let, let me go through a couple that work and one that doesn't. 
It is a happily ever after story that it's painting. But like every fairy tale, happily ever after is the final words of the fairy tale. To get there, you've got to go through a whole lot of struggle and a whole lot of hell first, right? Think about Revelation. There is this hope and this yearning that Christ is going to come and he is going to rescue me and redeem me and sweep me off my feet and marry me and we are going to live happily ever after. But what do we have to do before that? We find ourselves abducted. We find he has to fight for us. We, have, we find we have to struggle and endure and stay faithful through the process. We find that a dragon has to get slain. Are you following? I think Sleeping Beauty works in this, in one motif, where you've got the Prince Charming character who's coming, and he's fighting through the brambles, and he's fighting through the thorns, and he's fighting against Maleficent, who's taken the form of a dragon, and he's going head to head, and you don't know who's going to win, and she's finally cast down, and he gives her the kiss, and the next scene is you are in the castle, and the wedding is happening. Maybe Cinderella is a better motif. Because we've had weird things happen in Revelation, and so who knows, maybe there's pumpkin carriages and stuff like that that we can compare to. But maybe it's more this, maybe it's more of the focus on how we, as the woman waiting for the Redeemer to come, are just enduring under the harshest of circumstances and the most wicked of stepmothers. And what we're doing is just trying to keep our integrity and keep our sense of being and not be conformed by their ways and not living that fine line under the oppression, right? The fairy tale that won't work is Beauty and the Beast. It is not a fairy tale of falling in love with the beast, all right? The beast of Revelation is truly an antagonistic beast. So it doesn't work completely, but this is, I think, what it's inviting us to do. He's come. The wedding is here. We've made ourselves ready, And I want to circle back on that just very briefly because it does beg the question, how do you make yourself ready for Christ's return? And I'll just kind of throw that out to you. Maybe uh, let's do this, bust up maybe in groups of four, five, or ten, and just, just kind of jog some stuff back and forth. See what you come up with, and then we'll come up for air together and uh, see what you get, okay? Let's break. All right, let's, uh, let's throw some things out. What you come up with? How do you get ready for Jesus? You date him. So how do you date Jesus? Because he's probably not picking you up and taking you to a movie. So you take what you do in dating, which is where you learn about the person by spending time with them. So you spend time with Jesus trying to get him known more, right? How do I get to know you so... Uh, probably not so we see if this is a good fit, but rather to go, how do I learn how to do life with you? And yeah, got it. What else? How do you, how do you get ready? Yeah. Endurance. It's hard work. Endurance, it's hard work. So what's hard about it? Well, like Mary, you think all the wedding went sad, and if we're going to live happily ever after? No. Mm-hmm. in the faith that it's work. So how do you get ready for the endurance work? Because that's an after the fact. We're kind of getting ready beforehand. 
Yeah, great. So get to know the person. But if you didn't hear the other side, get to know yourself. Because how many of us don't really know ourselves that well? And that includes the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything else. Yeah, Jared. Yeah, you turn and change, I'll repeat these, you turn and change from your previous lifestyle to use revelation language very bluntly. Stop having sex with other people. I mean, would you agree that's good pre-marriage advice? That if you're going to marry this person... But that's exactly what revelation is saying, is like you're uniting yourself with this prostitute and you need to save yourself and, and, and adjust lifestyle. Yeah, what else? Good, good. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Todd. What Todd shared is there's a sense of urgency to this. How do you make this a priority? It's easy to go, ah, I'll get ready later. I'll worry about that some other time. But if this is the central thing of importance to you, how does that take first place in that sense of I'm preparing myself now for what's to come? Yeah, anything else come out of it? Discipline. Discipline? Like in what way, Barbie? What do you think? So if you didn't hear Barbie, she said there's a discipline to this. And maybe if I could do this by analogy to relationships, how many of us have been in a dating relationship of any kind whatsoever? And you love the person, and you're committed to the person, but you don't really want to spend time with the person. You don't want to take their call. You don't want to be on the phone for 30 minutes. You don't want to return the text. You don't want to go visit them. You don't, and it's not because you don't like them. It, you're just tired or there's other things on your mind or you want to do something else. So how do you discipline to prioritize that person and do the work of being there for that person and things like that? Am I catching that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So piggybacking off Barbie, the simple things. How many of us have all of those? Let me frame it this way, maybe. And I think we can all be honest with each other here. 
right? How many of us have pet peeves? The things that our spouse does that are pet peeves. Okay, none of you. That's quite amazing. How many of you do things that are pet peeves to your spouse? How many of you are aware of all of your pet peeves? Probably, well, okay, some of you, because maybe your spouse tells you, but, um, but I bet a lot of us aren't aware because generally spouses tend to be pretty tolerant creatures. Would you agree? Otherwise, they wouldn't be there anymore. And so in any relationship, there's things that bug us that we bring up and other things that bug us but because we don't want to nitpick or nag or always be accentuating the negative, we just kind of tolerate, which goes back to that self-awareness thing of going, do I just take that for granted and go, well, she ain't ragging me on it, so I'm just going to kind of keep doing it and get away with it? Well, then if you want a happy marriage, hopefully you're being attentive to it, and not if you love the person, because hopefully you're being attentive to them going, wow, if this bugs them, why do I insist on keep doing it? Why don't I, out of a, 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 a platform and statement of love, actually just live a little bit differently on this one? And I'm not talking if something's immoral or something. That would be absurd, but you're with me, right? So let's not miss maybe an obvious on this. Do you think that Jesus has pet peeves? Or God has pet peeves? Yeah, and, and, and what is a classic Christian theological term that we use to describe those relational pet peeves. Sin, right? At one level, how do you get ready for your spouse? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's not, sin is not sin because we're breaking some law that's been set up that doesn't affect everyone. Sin is sin because it's hurting a relationship with God. So if it's hurting God, why would we want to continue to hurt God if we claim to love him? Both by what we do and by what we don't do, right? It's the same thing. There's things that we know that set our spouse off. There's other things that we know our spouse would delight in if we did it differently. Well, that's why these classic confessions are, you know, most merciful God. We confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We confess our sins and iniquities before you, and it goes on and on. The things we have done, the things that we have left undone by what we do, by what we don't do. You, you know, you'll see it in different classic prayers in different ways. Bottom line, the bride has made herself ready. And just in case you're missing it, John will even key into how. You know, we can sit here and speculate all day and night, and I think there's value in it, but she was given fine linen, bright and clean, to wear, and what is it? It's the righteous acts of the saints. She just started leading a God-pleasing life. She based her life on bringing him joy, what we would call obedience, I guess, from a biblical standpoint, but I don't think that word connects relationally as much anymore. The only reason I'm not going that way. Because the wedding's come, and the point of it now is if Christ is coming, and you're in love with him, and you're looking forward to the fairy tale ending, how do you not take him for granted and that for granted, but start preparing yourself? And how do you start doing it today? Because I tell you what, 
if you're trying to lose 10 pounds before the wedding, it doesn't come off three days before the ceremony. You know what I'm saying? Unless you're spitting in the cup and then you got other issues going on. Let's keep going. I saw heaven, I'm at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. Total fairy tale, right? Whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Okay, this is like total Prince Charming. He's literally coming on a white horse. He's strong. He's valiant. He's mysterious. No one knows his name but he himself. We're swooning here, ladies, right? And I'm talking to you dudes in the room, too, all right? He, okay, now, now yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, he, and he's fierce. He's in a, in a, he's in a robe, di- dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. He's come out of war. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So, so the legions are following behind him in full military regalia, right? Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. And he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God. That sounds good, but you're going to find out how gross it is. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the, la- into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. How about that for an ending, right? We've come to the climax Christ has come. The great war that has been building up is now finalized. All the kings of the earth and their armies have raised up to wage war, and they don't stand a chance against Jesus and his armies. And like every hero of old, like every kind of fairy tale or epic or saga that you can imagine and see this through the lens of, he is coming, and he is vic- and he's coming with victory, and he's coming to cast them down. He's coming to free his people. He's coming to rescue his bride, and they don't stand a chance. Did you notice the Revelation 1 language? When Jesus was pictured with these images of fiery eyes and swords coming out of his mouth in the very beginning, how we've come full circle on that again. And I want to point something out in this in a second, but Zach, go for it. Yeah. Right? Which is really interesting. I yeah. I'm reading into it, but like typically when we have battles and watch movies and what have you, there's a battle. And there's yeah. Back and forth fighting. And here it's actually just like once he comes out, it's, it's over. 
Yeah, and, and is that theologically intended, or is it just the fact that they didn't have a good 21st century movie producer who knew what people wanted to hear? Like, I think of, like, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Like, the Battle of the Five Armies and The Hobbit is literally a page and a half. And then you go and watch it, and they made three Hobbit movies so they could devote one whole movie just to the battle, right? Yeah, like that. Something else on that, Zach, too, that I think is very intentional. Let's paint the scene here. We have the kings of the earth and their armies, and we've seen that we have the rider on the white horse and his armies. And the battle's over like that, the victory, they're cast down. How is the rider on the white horse dressed? He's in a robe dipped in blood. All right. Now, because we know that this rider is Jesus, you might be going to the cross, and, and I'm not saying don't, because certainly that's where it fits in, but we can't miss the image first. If you are victorious in battle and covered in blood, whose blood is it? The enemies. And why are you covered in their blood? Because ancient warfare is different than modern warfare in one very significant way. Proximity. Modern warfare, by and far, is done at a distance. Whether you're dropping bombs from altitude or whether you're shooting someone from a quarter mile away, it is done in such a way that you do not get splatter. Yes, do I know that there is still face-to-face -face combat? Of course I know that. But it is rare in the norm of how battle is conducted overall, agreed. But in the ancient world, even though they had archers, basically it come face-to-face. You're riding a horse to charge into battle, and you are gored in their blood. Now, he has an army with him, and we know that the army are the saints, right? How are the army dressed? White. Who goes into battle in naval white uniform? If I can put it that way. Maybe better put, who comes out of battle clean, unless they didn't fight. You with me? Who's doing the fighting? Christ. Christ is winning this one. And I think that's tucked in some of the, the battle imagery here, yeah. Yeah, I love that. How much of it, too, might be a trophy of sorts where he's coming wearing all the blood of his victims, you know, because we are. I mean, the people of Revelation are the victims. You know, they're being victimized by Rome. And if he's coming to avenge, that there's almost a, like a banner or a standard of, in their blood. Certainly we can't miss the cross and all of this because that's where physically and fundamentally the fundamental victory of Christ's victory came over the forces of darkness. And, uh, you know, of course we'll come again. But this is where Revelation 19 leads us. It's done. It's finished. The battle is over. Christ has returned. And what Revelation 20 through 22 is going to do is then give us a picture of what now happens in the aftermath 
of Christ's return. What is the new heavens, new earth? What is judgment day? What is the hope that we've been waiting for? We've got to wait till next week on that. God bless, guys. Thanks for coming.